Well, with a, with a group this size, uh, there are going to be many differences uh, between all of us, such as our background, our upbringing, uh, where we grew up, or how maybe large or small our families are. There's going to be differences maybe between us of what our interests and hobbies are, where, where we work, or what we do, what we're skilled at. Some of us here maybe grew up in a large city. Others maybe grew up in suburbia. Others maybe grew up in a small rural town, and that's home to you. For many in here, maybe even America is not even the, the country in which you grew up. America is not even your home. There's going to be lots of differences amongst us here this morning. However, there also are some commonalities. What unites us most and uh, first and foremost as a, as a church, as brothers and sisters, despite all of our differences, is, again, first and foremost, the gospel. But, but another commonality that, that's amongst us is we've all been impacted, whether positively or negatively, or a lot of times in both ways, by leadership, by those in leadership. Whether we realize it or not, our lives are constantly being affected by those charged to lead, and we're constantly, whether we realize it or not, constantly evaluating whether certain leadership is healthy or, or unhealthy. Uh, politicians are, are constantly under the microscope and being examined for what they, what they say or what they don't say in any given situation. University presidents and professors and teachers are con- constantly and continually being grilled for what they teach and what they say and how they impact those that are underneath their leadership. Um, pastors are, are charged to lead and to do so faithfully and, and humbly, and when they fall short, my goodness, does it leave a scar in our lives, doesn't it? All of us have been impacted, whether positively or negatively, by our parents. Maybe even for some of us, our, our, our grandparents, and their ways in which they've led have impacted us positively or negatively. All of us share this commonality that leadership matters. Leadership affects us. But now let's, let's personalize it even a bit further. How, how are you leading those within your sphere of influence, no matter how big or small that sphere may be? That in, in our lives, if our lives are intersecting with the lives of others, then the way in which we love and the way in which we serve and the way in which we lead will leave a lasting impact. And so we want to ask the question this morning, what does healthy, faithful, godly leadership look like? What, what happens when there's a lack of leadership? It, that's really what we're seeing actually throughout the book of Judges, a lack of faithful leadership, or at least people responding to leadership. The book of Judges, we'll get there in several months from now, but the book of Judges ends with a very dramatic statement. In Judges 21, 25, it says that in those days, there was no king in Israel, meaning there was no one leading them, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no one leading the people, and and quite honestly, what we even read or garner from that, that verse alone, is that the people really didn't want to be led. That's that's even just a natural state of the human heart. We, We don't really want to be led. They, they, they wanted to do what was right in their own eyes, which means, and we share this with them, uh, they wanted to be God. They wanted to determine what was right and wrong. Don't tell me what to do. This verse tends to really summarize even our own culture today. And the church, which is oftentimes quick and quick to, to point out the flaws of the, the culture around us, I would maybe even argue for a moment here that we need to maybe pause Take a step back and ask ourselves, why 
why is it that there seems to be virtually no cultural change in our cities? Why does there seem to be no, virtually no cultural change in our, in our communities? Why is the church, which is, as we read from Scripture, empowered by the Spirit of God, why is the church, which is commissioned by Jesus to reflect, to go and proclaim the hope of the gospel, why does it seem that the church is failing to do so? There seems to be in our, in our world today, in our culture today, a significant leadership deficiency even amongst the church. And I'm not just talking about pastors, although that is certainly true. I'm talking about the, the church as a whole, the people redeemed by God through Jesus Christ. Why is it that it seemingly seems that we are failing to lead amongst a corrupt and decaying world? Why are men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, pastors, deacons, church members, students, what, what is taking place in our hearts which is causing us to not lead as God has called us to lead? Are, are, we, are we punting on our charge from God to lead and to go make disciples and to push back against that which is dark in the world? Too many churches today, sadly, are more closely resembling the culture that's around them than Christ who has redeemed them. And, and there's maybe many reasons for that, or at least many excuses that we, that we think perhaps we've just grown too comfortable with this world. Perhaps we've minimized our sin. Perhaps we feel as, as though maybe we have nothing to offer. I don't have anything to offer. Perhaps we see ourselves as just far too flawed to be actually used of God. Perhaps, perhaps we, we think we're too young or, or we're too old to, to make a difference. Perhaps we think there are others. There's others out there far more capable than, than I am to, to lead. Whatever, whatever the reason or the excuse that maybe we, we think, I, I believe Judges 4 invites us to see what it is to lead faithfully. The, the, the church is the, the vehicle by which Jesus is spreading the fame of his, of his name. It is the means by which he is pushing back against that which is dark in the world. And the church, which is comprised of redeemed sinners through Christ's victory, has been empowered with the Spirit of God and given a mission. We have been commissioned to spread the knowledge of the glory of God in every domain of our lives. Therefore, since, since God has, has and always will prevail over the hand of the enemy, we must, we must faithfully lead others to behold him in a world that is heavily, heavily set against us. And the story of, of Judges 4 that we just heard read consists of uh, five characters, if, if you pointed them out. Jabin, Sisera, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. Uh, two of them are supporting cast at, at best. That'd be Jabin and, and Sisera. But the, the story here of this chapter is really told here by the author. It, it centers heavily on the Lord's working uh, through the other three. That would be Deborah, Barak, and, and Jael. Uh, and remember, again, this was a time in, in Israel's history when there was no, no king. The, there was no one truly leading them to, to love and treasure their God. And and so God would raise up judges, but as soon as the judge would die, they would, they would instantly fall back into forgetting their God and drifting away from him. And so because there's nobody truly leading them, because of that, the Israelites continually forget their God and they continually did whatever, what was ever right in their own eyes, which would always result in their enslavement. 
This time they find themselves uh, enslaved to this king named, named Jabin in, over Canaan. He was a, a cruel and a, an oppressive tyrant. He ruled, not what just said, but he ruled cruelly and he ruled by fear and intimidation. The, the way in which the author here records this, this event in Israel's history, though when, when, it was, when I was reading through it, it's, it's rather interesting. It's, it's almost as if uh, the author is kind of pulling back the curtain for us to see a little bit more the inner workings of, of God's plan of, of redeeming, of God's plan of redemption, God's plan of raising up the, the leaders to, to lead his people. And, and we begin to see a little bit here, the curtain removed, and we're seeing a, to, to some degree the character traits of these people that were used of God. Now, if you've been with us for the past couple of, of weeks, you might have noticed as, as this was read that there was a, a certain phrase missing that was, that was common in the last couple of stories of the judges that we saw in the judge of Othniel and last week, the judge of Ehud. Here in verses 1 through 3, uh, if you skim over them, it, it should sound familiar. Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That, that sounds familiar. That's what we've heard and that's what we've read. Therefore, what took place next is God judged them by, by selling them into the hand of their enemy. That should sound familiar. And that, yeah, that years of oppression and enslavement resulted in that. And then what we see then in verse 3 is that Israel cries out to God for help. All these things are familiar and part of a little bit of the cycle that we see in the book of Judges. That sounds familiar, but what has typically come next, at least in the last couple of narratives that we've read on the judges, was that God would raise up a deliverer. We'd see that phrase, God raised up a deliverer to rescue them, to help them, to save them. But we, we don't see those words here. In, instead, I believe what we're seeing and what the author is revealing is the means by which God was raising up the deliverer. I think the author wants to, in this narrative here, draw our attention to some degree, to the lives of Deborah, the character of Deborah and of Barak and, and of Jael. And these people that were used of God and the author, I believe, wants us to see something about how, how one should faithfully lead even when it seems as though all the odds are stacked up against us. And that's exactly what's taking place here in chapter 4. The odds are stacked up against Israel, seemingly. The, the author wants to, to draw us to that point, to, to make that point real. He, he says Jabin, this king, had this massive army that was led by this commander named Sisera. And, and Sisera had at his command, at his disposal, 900 chariots of iron. Th this would have been the, the, the top of the line, the cutting edge, advanced military superpower of that day. Going up against, going up against this army would have been like a, uh, taking a pair of recruits that are fresh from military training and then arming them with, with squirt guns and, and going up against SEAL Team 6. This, this experienced, battle-tested group of warriors that are armed with the latest and the advanced weaponry. That, that's the picture that we're seeing here. From a human perspective, the author is saying they shouldn't win. You're not going to win this fight. You're outmatched against this bigger, better, well-trained army with the top-notch gear, 900 chariots of iron. It's a picture the author draws up. It's, it, it seems as though this enemy is too large. It's too overwhelming. What, what a picture this is. What a picture this is even of what we seemingly face today as Christ followers. Maybe this is a, a reason why we fail to lead. Maybe one of the other reasons we, we give or we tell ourselves is 
uh, the enemy just seems too overpowering for us to, to even have a chance. And so instead, instead of going after it, we, we make a deal. We compromise our faith. But that's not what we see taking place here in this, this story. Not, not at all. In fact, what we see happening here is really what faithful, godly leadership looks like in the face of overwhelming odds. And, and that's what I want to spend really the rest of our time on, on this morning. We're going we're gonna to walk through this, this text a little bit differently than maybe how I would normally do it. Rather than just our normal three to four applicational points, we're going to identify, uh, and bear with me, we're going to identify eight traits all right, a faithful, godly leadership. Now, I whittled that down from 10, all right? So eight traits. We're going to look at faithful, godly leadership as, as revealed through these lives of Deborah, of Barak, and, and Jael. But then ultimately, we're going to see how these, these traits of leadership find their, their ultimate fulfillment in the one true leader of the church, Jesus Christ, the one king of all kings, Lord of all lords. Now, what we're going to walk through today, this is, is not going to be this comprehensive listing of, of every trait that a, accompanies godly leadership. I'm not writing a book on, on leadership, and here's my text for that. But what we're going to see is what was necessary for Israel, what was necessary for these three individuals of what leadership they needed as they faced this ferocious enemy. And so we're going to look through the, the lives of these three people, Deborah, Barak, Jael. Let's look at Deborah first. We're introduced to her in verse 4. She, she was judging Israel at the time, leading Israel at the time, and was, and was leading them through her wisdom and her knowledge. And, and she was speaking the words of God to the people of God as, as what the author says was a prophetess. And in verse 5, we read that the Israelites, they, they knew where to find her and, and that they sought her out because of her wisdom. And so there's two traits I want us to look at, what godly leadership is as we look at the life of Deborah. Number one, we see that godly leadership is steady, reliable, and accessible. It's steady, it's reliable, and, it, and it's accessible. The, the people of Israel knew where to find her. They knew where she was. She was not elusive. She was not unpredictable. You didn't know what, what side of her you were going to get on any certain day. She was steady. She was Accessible. She was reliable. Israel had been under the thumb of a, of a cruel and oppressive tyrant for 20 years. What they needed, what they needed was stability. They needed a leader that was reliable, that was steady. And they found that in Deborah. Deborah was used of God in that way. The, the world in which we find ourselves today is chaotic, is it not? And, and leadership that's going to stand out in a chaotic world is going to be leadership, that, leadership that's going to be influential is going to be a, a type of leadership that remains constant and steady throughout because it's resting on a foundation that is safe and secure in the hope and victory we find in Christ. So, so why should we not fear as the people of God when wars break out? Why should we not fear when global pandemics arise? Why should we not fear when the cultural tides grow bigger and larger against the people of God? Why should we not fear in any of that? Because Christ is one. Because Christ is victorious over his world, over this world. He is one through his death, through his resurrection. Therefore, there is nothing that can rise up against us if we are resting and planted firmly in him that's greater than he is, which is why we can be steady and accessible and reliable as we seek to lead through the chaos. 
But a second trait that we see in the life of Deborah is that the godly leadership speaks with wisdom. It speaks with wisdom. Verses 4 and 5 explain how she was, she was leading Israel at that time. She was, she was judging, meaning she was governing. She was settling disputes. She was making decisions for the good of the people. And, and because of that, and because of her wisdom, she was, she was sought out. People came to her because they recognized that when she opened her mouth, she spoke wisely. She spoke wisely as one who had been in the presence of God. That type of person is sought out. When what, what the world is searching for, whether it realizes it or not, is a search for truth. Most people, by, by just our human nature, are, are quick, though, and quick and, and eager to give their opinions on, on matters. And many speak far too often and far too quickly before attaining any knowledge on the matter. And that isn't not the world in which we live. Quick to speak, slow to listen. With, with the rise of the, of the influencer, with the rise of the podcaster, with the rise of the political pundits, there's no shortage today of people who are very eager to give you their opinions as if we're asking for them. But, but they're going to give it anyway, and, and, and most of it becomes nothing but white noise against this backdrop of other people's opinions that all sound the same. But Deborah's voice, Deborah's voice was one that pierced through the craziness, pierced through the chaos. It was a voice that people sought out. Why? Because she spoke words that were, that were connected to the ultimate source of truth, her God. It wasn't her just on a random day saying, here's my words of advice for the day. It was rooted in what God had told her, what God was revealing to her. What's needed today, what's needed today is a prophetic voice, a prophetic voice. Now, not one that speaks new revelation but one that speaks biblical revelation. That's what's needed in the world today. Where does this prophetic voice begin? Proverbs 1.7 would say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the knowledge. What's needed today is not a people who boast in themselves as if they have anything of value intrinsically within them to offer to this world, but a people who boast in a great and majestic God, a God that we have sung to this morning. That's what the world needs to hear. That's the voice that godly leaders need to, to, to share with a broken and chaotic world. Those are two traits we see from Deborah. But let's turn now our attention to another character within the story, that of Barak. The story continues here in chapter 4 that, that we're introduced to this, this leader of this army. So Deborah calls Barak and speaks to him, God's call on his life. And says, God's called you to go rescue Israel from their oppressors. This is what I was talking about. A little bit of this behind the scenes look at how God raised up his deliverers. It, it seems as though God raised up his deliverers through the mouths of his people, calling on them and speaking truth into their life. Barak responds, yet, did you notice how he responds? Maybe somewhat hesitantly. Somewhat hesitantly. He, he's recognizing Deborah's leadership and and says, I'll go into battle, but I, if you're not with me, I'm not going. Now, Deborah responds, listen, I'll go with you. But she also speaks this and says, but, but the glory of this victory is not going to go to you. It's going to, go to, it's going to go to another. In fact, the glory of victory is going to belong to another woman that we're not even yet introduced to in this story. Barak is a, he's an interesting character. Uh, common, commentators are split on, on how to take him. Uh, some see him as this, this great hero. Uh, he, he went up against Sisera and his 900 chariots of iron. 
And so they, they, they lift him up and kind of exalt him as he was a great hero of the faith. But yet there's other commentators who see him as the complete opposite way. He was this weak, hesitant, cowardly leader that's abdicating his responsibility to other women. I see him somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. He's flawed, but he's faithful. He's flawed, and yet he is faithful. I, I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel like we're maybe guilty of removing the humanity from the stories. Like, we'll read this and think to ourselves, what's wrong with this fool? What's wrong with this fool? Go into battle. Go. God promised you the victory. Get going. You don't even think twice about this. Just get going. So what if Sisera has 900 chariots of iron? That wouldn't stop me from going. You see, like, we sometimes remove the humanity from this, this story. However, we, let's, let's take it to where we are today. We have the completed work of God's word. We, we can look back to the, the sacrifice and the victory of Christ, and yet we still today are often hesitant. We're today often resistant to God's call on our lives. We're flawed. Barak was, was flawed. Yet God used him despite his flawed nature, which means this. God's going to use us. We'll use you despite your flawed nature. Praise God for that. See, Barak goes, he goes into battle. He is faithful. He goes into battle against 900 chariots of, of iron. And the Lord wins the victory, wins the battle. The Lord says rooted. That means that confused, confused the enemy. So, so it's almost like they didn't know which way was up, which way is down. And every last one of them is killed except for their commander, Sisera, who then flees away, runs away from the battle. And so looking at, at the life of Barak, what, what traits of faithful, godly leadership do we see in a flawed Barak, I would say there's four more to look at. Number one, in Barak, we look at this idea that godly leadership is humble. Godly leadership is humble. We see this in verse 8. Barak, he, he refuses to go into battle without Deborah. Now, some would say this is cowardice. I, I'm going to argue, I, I think Barak is recognizing the authority of Deborah and the power she wielded from being in the presence of God. And I believe Barak in this moment is, is being humble enough to recognize his own weaknesses and the need for others. The, the world pushes this, this broken idea of true leadership and in that, in that true leadership is, is where one, one person is going to be first. One, the, to be a true leader, you're first, you're foremost, you're above all others, and you are in need of nothing. So it's this idea of I don't need your help. I don't need you to tell me anything. I know it all. Get out of my way. That's a leader. Take charge. Get a, roll over everyone and you lead the charge. The disciples of Jesus struggled with this on multiple occasions. When they were arguing amongst themselves about which one of them is going to be first. Which one of them is going to be recognized above all others. Which of them is going to be the, the, the greatest. They had no room for the, for the others. They saw the mountaintop and they were willing to fight and claw and, and destroy everyone to get to the top. And Jesus wrecks this self-centered view of what it means to be a, a leader. He says in Mark 10 to his disciples as they're arguing, he says, you know you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and they're great ones. They exercise authority over them. He's saying, you've seen how the, the leaders of the world lead. You've seen how the, the religious Pharisees lead. They're, they're all about authority. They're all about control. They're all about being first. They're all about recognition. That's the message of the world. That's all you're going to hear. But he says, but it's not going to be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a, a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a, as a ransom for many. Jesus came in humility. Jesus came in human weakness. And he served rather than demanding others serve him. He, he modeled true humility, which, which characterizes faithful, godly leadership. What's needed in the world today are husbands who put their wives first, who love their children enough to say no to things that might distract them from the treasure of knowing Jesus. We need students who are going to serve their classmates. We need employees who are going to serve their coworkers. We need employers who are going to serve their employees. We need pastors who are going to lead through the laying down of their lives for the flock just as Jesus served and laid down his life. See, God, godly leadership is, is humble. The second thing we learn from, from Barak is that godly leadership, it listens. It listens. Notice in verses 6 and 14 that Barak listens to Deborah. What what a remarkable and often ignored characteristic of godly leadership. To listen first. Leaders are expected, right, to to speak, right? Ask questions later. Leaders, no, they act, they move. And while certainly leadership involves speaking, certainly leadership involves acting, godly leadership should first be characterized by a willingness, let me listen, Proverbs again, 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. James 1, verse 19 says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. See, godly leadership loves to surround themselves with with people who will speak truthfully and wisely. Godly leadership also surrounds themselves with people who won't just tell them what they want to hear. And that's that's a temptation we fall in. I'll I'll listen to people as long as you tell me what I've already worked up in my mind that I want to hear. And as soon as I don't hear that, then, then you're dead to me. i am move on to the next. So we can argue, no, I listen. But no, you only listen to people who tell you and affirm what you already want. Surround yourselves with people who will tell you what God's word actually says. Godly leaders listen to God's word and respond to it, even if their flesh says, I don't want to do that. See, godly leadership is characterized by listening. But we also see a third trait in in the life of Barak. That is godly leadership shares the glory. Godly leadership shares the glory. In verse 9, Deborah tells Barak that the the, the glory of this victory over Sisera is not going to be yours. Not going to be yours. It's it's instead, it's going to be given to another woman. Human beings are lovers of recognition. We are lovers of affirmation, aren't we? We want, we so badly want people to know our achievements We so badly want people to to see what we have accomplished in our life. If you've you've ever played competitive sports, you you dream of making that game-winning shot at the buzzer. You you dream of of scoring that game-winning touchdown. You dream of hitting that bottom of the ninth inning bases loaded grand slam so you can be hoisted up on shoulders, celebrated, people chanting your name. And when it happens... To someone else, outwardly we celebrate. Yes, go team, so great. Oh, but inwardly, oh, why you? Why did that have to happen to you? You don't deserve, right? We, we, we crave accolade. 
We want it. We don't want to share the glory, if we're honest. And yet here, Barak goes into battle against 900 chariots of, of iron with this overwhelming odds, knowing, knowing from the beginning, I'm not going to get the glory. I'm not going to get the recognition of this victory. It's going to be handed to someone else. And yet, Barak still goes into the battle. That's what I mean by he was flawed, but he was faithful. Godly leadership is not concerned about the self. It's concerned about others. It's about sharing the glory for the good of others, for the glory of God's name. Think, think of what we see within the Godhead. Father, Son, Spirit. What do we see there regarding salvation? We see a, a sharing of glory. God the Father calls God the Son cleanses and sacrifices his life. God the Spirit seals and sanctifies. Within even the triune Godhead, there is this sharing of glory amongst themselves in the salvation of sinners. Godly leadership shares the glory. Fourth thing we see from Barak is that godly leadership is dependent upon the Lord. That's what we see of Barak in verses 14 and 15. Once again, we're reminded it's the Lord who hands the enemy over to Israel's hand. There was, there was no way Barak in Israel, even with their 10,000 men, would have stood a chance against 900 chariots of iron. They would have cut through them like a, like a hot knife through, through butter. They only won because they were dependent on the Lord for victory. Leadership that is effective, that is influential, that is impactful in this world is going to be one that recognizes their utter need and dependence upon God. It's the only way that type of leadership will ever be effective and impactful in a chaotic world if it's dependent not on yourself, but on him. Jesus affirms this in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Let that sit for a minute. Say that again to yourself. Jesus is divine. I'm the branch. Jesus is divine. I'm the branch. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he says, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus modeled this dependence upon his his father during his earthly ministry. That even upon the cross, Jesus committed his spirit into the father's hand. He was dependent upon the father, and and through his life, and his death, and his resurrection, he made a way for sinners, such as as you and, and as me, to be made right with God through faith in his death. Have you believed, friends, this good news? Who are you dependent on? Who are you dependent on? Let's look at the last character in our story, probably the one everybody wants to get to, jail. I want to meet jail one day. Last character in our text is this woman named Jael. Sisera's army is defeated. He runs away from the battle. He finds this shelter in, in Jael's tent. And he, he comes to her because he's thinking that her tribe, her family, has made peace with, with King Jabin. So he thinks, he thinks this is safe lodging. But we, we heard how the story ends. Not well for Sisera. He ends up taking a nap on, on the floor. Jael takes his tent peg and a, and a hammer and goes to town on his head, driving it through his skull into the ground. You see those details? This wasn't one little hit. I mean, it was, it was a hammer and a nail, right? Not a pretty picture. This is not a pretty picture. But I, <laughs> I love how the author says at the end of verse 21, after having a tent peg hammered through his skull into the ground, so he died. Yeah, I mean, probably do without saying it. We, we get that from context, right? Um, 
But from the life of jail, I, I, I believe there's at least two more traits we can look at of, of godly leadership. And, and the first thing maybe is the one that flies off the page, right? Godly leadership is courageous. It is courageous. Jail, think about this, invited the enemy into her tent, into her home. Sisera was an experienced soldier. You, 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 you get to be commander of this incredible, you don't get to be uh, this commander of this army just by chance. He was most likely a, a very deadly individual. And all jail had at her disposal was a tent stake and a mallet. And, and so this was a courageous act, which, which goes to show godly leadership does not cower in fear, but boldly takes on the enemy, enemy but does so wisely. She, she waited for him to be asleep. She, she approached him stealthily. She gave him something to drink. She understood the nature of the enemy and acted accordingly. Do you understand the nature of the enemy? Do we understand the nature of the enemy? Scripture refers to Satan as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do you understand the nature of the enemy that is set against you? Fighting against this enemy is going to take courage. The second thing we see from jail is that godly leadership must be ferocious against the enemy. Again, this is a, a bloody and disgusting scene. But what we see in this is the necessity and the level of violence that we must take against the enemy. The level of violence that we must take against sin. Now, we need to ask for a second, who is the enemy? Who is the enemy? Because the, the church oftentimes is confused on who the enemy is and Oftentimes, social media posts reflect that. We think our enemy is all the people who disagree. And, and Paul says, no, 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 it's not your enemy. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That, that's our enemy. We, we must first know our enemy, then be ferocious against him. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Our sin will always lead to enslavement. Therefore, we must be unapologetically ferocious in seeking to put sin to death in our lives. And we must be zealous in our pursuit of one another. Our, our pursuit of one another so, so they don't, we don't see them fall prey to the trappings of sin in their own lives because we understand the nature of the enemy. We understand what he's about. We understand what his mission is. And so we're going to be ferocious against it, not only in our lives, but as we protect one another. This takes godly leadership of which we are all responsible and called to. In all of this, we see Jesus. Three characters were mentioned today, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. As courageous as they were, as faithful as they were, they were still insufficient in and of themselves to bring about the victory. They needed one another. Deborah needed Barak to, to lead the army. Barak needed Deborah to be his strength in the battle. Jael needed Barak to defeat the army so that, so that Cicero would be worn down enough for her to, to strike that final blow. They, they all led faithfully, but they were still not in and of themselves the one true leader that Israel needed. This story, as amazing as it is, is more amazing when we see Jesus as the fulfillment and picture of ultimately what humanity needs. Jesus is the leader who is always steady who's always reliable, who is always accessible. 
Jesus is the, the leader who speaks in wisdom, speaks wisely with truth. Jesus is the, the humble leader, the one that's deserving of glory among the Father and the Spirit. Jesus was perfectly dependent upon his Father. Jesus courageously walked up the hill to, of Calvary to offer up his life. On that cross, Jesus bore the sins of many. Jesus endured the Father's wrath. He was forsaken so that through faith in Christ, we would not be forsaken. Jesus rose from that grave three days after the cross, defeating the power of sin and death. He was ferocious against the enemy and has disarmed him. There's our hope. There's our grace-empowered motivation to do as God has called us to do, to be what God has called us to be, to lead as God has called us to lead. This is what the world needs. Faithful, godly leaders to bring about transformation and to bring about hope. So will you lead? Let's pray.